Welcome to Hungry for Words, a podcast in which I have lunch with a food writer and you get to listen in. I'm your host, Kathleen Flynn. My guest today is Alana Trinilla, who gained a huge following with her food blog, Eating from the Ground Up. Her first book, The Homemade Pantry, 101 Foods and You Can Stop Buying and Start Making, created a sensation when it was released in 2012. And I'm going to be honest with you, I probably made at least a quarter of the recipes from that book. I love it. So I'm delighted that today I'm talking to her about her second book, The Homemade Kitchen. Alana lives with her husband and her kids in Western Massachusetts. She started her whole food journey working in a farmer's market selling fruit and vegetables, something she still does today. And since then, she's been writing, teaching, and she's never looked back. We'll be talking about all kinds of useful stuff, from finding uses for food you might otherwise throw away, to the uselessness of perfect-looking food in your actual real life, and how to deal with the dangers of bacon. I'm delighted to have her today because I feel like in a lot of ways, she and I are kindred souls in the kitchen. I will tell you that if you are a home cook who has ever had any anxiety whatsoever about cooking, or you're looking for ways to seriously stretch your food dollar, you need to listen to this show. So Alana actually had a great first book and it was called The Homemade Pantry in which she talked about how to make all kinds of stuff including but not limited to homemade Pop-Tarts which I I had to admit (laughs) I've made many times but I would say the thing that I really like about that book and and this book is that you know she really breaks cooking down to very fundamental techniques as opposed to just coming up with a lot of recipes so you know, just in the first like 10 pages of this book, she has how to cook an egg, how to make pickles, how to turn fruit into jam or jelly, you know, how to make a salad. Um, she and I both feel strongly about people learning how to make their own vinaigrette. She has that in here. She even has a section on how to transform milk, which is to make milk into yogurt or creme fraiche, sour cream, buttermilk, ricotta, that kind of thing. And so I think the thing that's great flipping through her book that I really like is that it's all very accessible. It's all stuff home cooks would have around. And and I think that that's one of the reasons why she is so successful with her blog, um, because I, I think that she feels like a real home cook helping other real home cooks. So I was flipping through here and there's all kinds of stuff that I could make. I was really almost made this roasted potato salad because it looked fabulous. But I ended up deciding to make popovers. And part of the reason I wanted to make popovers is because there's a whole story about how Dorothy Parker, who is one of my favorite writers of all time, um, she and all her friends, writer friends, would go to the Algonquin Hotel and gather around the famous Algonquin Roundtable. And one of the things that um, the hotel used to feed them, because it would sit there for hours, and none of them had a lot of money, they would, among the regular menu that they served were celery popovers. And I remember reading this and actually could not figure out what a popover looked like. So I have been kind of weirdly fascinated with popovers ever since then, and never have made one. I, I don't know why. It's It's clearly not that hard. So... I found her recipe for um, popovers, and she suggests using some fresh herbs in this case. Uh, I had some parsley, and I had some dill, and uh, and chevre, so um, I'm really excited. It's pretty straightforward, so you combine eggs, milk, 
flour, salt, and some butter in a blender. I'm putting all those things together. And now I'm gonna let the batter rest for about 10 minutes or so. Uh, and while that rests, I'm going to, as she instructs, generously grease a 12 cup muffin or popover tin with oil. It's been about 10 minutes. Now I'm gonna take the batter and um, pour it in among the cups and filling them almost all the way to the top. I'm adding a pinch of the chopped fresh dill and a bit of the chevre, and then I'm actually adding a little bit of um, the smoked sea salt too on the top, just because, you know, why not? And now I am going to put into the oven and Alana says, do not open the oven. This is very hard for me. I'm, I'm totally an oven peeker, but I will put them into the oven without opening for about 25 to 28 minutes. Let's see how it goes. they're done now oh my god they look like popovers this is really super cool they like come up and they're kind of puffy in the top and they're kind of you know got a little waste on them it's amazing i thought you needed like a popover dish but apparently you don't so excited so one of the reasons i wanted to talk to you is because to me you kind of wrote the kind of cookbook if i was going to write a cookbook that i would write oh. <laughs> and um and i i i really love the conversation around food waste mm -hmm. and thinking about food waste as a as something that you can control and also like not filling up your whole bin with paper towels and reusing towels and so maybe talk about that a bit and like yeah. where, when did that start being a, a thing to you and something you started really considering well you know I feel like this whole book is really um for me it's a book about all the different ways that I I can cook and eat in ways that reflect how I want to live so it's sort of always that question like you know if I want to live a life where like I'm happy in my days where I'm not wasteful where I'm kind to my family where I'm building community like food is that opportunity you know we eat so many times a day and we cook and Every time I do it, I have a choice. So, so that efficiency has really just come out of the way that I want to live, and also out of, uh, you know, an awareness of of economy. Because you know, I just I only have so much money to spend on our my family's food, and I don't want to throw away things that I'm buying. You know, I feel like every time I get every time I get squash seeds or that I can roast for a snack or I use a chicken carcass to, you know, make stock or, or even I use pasta water to make like a really great sauce. I kind of feel like I'm, I'm undermining the system in sort of a subversive and awesome way. So, you know, like that, that I've got, you know, they thought I was going to throw this away, but I'm actually, I'm actually really finding the treasures in the kitchen. So, um, and, and, you know, a lot of it, of course, the problem of food waste is so big that it's you know when we really hear about what's happening both in the US and in the world it's easy to feel overwhelmed and like we don't have any power but the fact is is that we do have power in our own kitchens and i think it's important not to get not to get weighed down by how big the problems are but to understand that we can really start at our own counters, you know, and that that's a good place to begin. And then you sort of start with an awareness and then see where else it can go. But 
Uh, but yeah, it feels good to, to make less waste and less garbage in the kitchen. It's, uh, it's, I think it's good for everyone. Ruth Reichel once said, um, you know, you only get to vote for a president once every four years, but you vote every day, three times a day when you eat. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, we, we really do make such decisions when we choose how we cook and what we cook. And I think, um, it's great that we have so much conversation going on about that now. And, and I think, you know, in some ways it's, I think it's sort of a two-sided thing because there, there, everyone's thinking about sustainability and we talk about GMOs and, and, you know, all these different questions of how to vote with our, essentially with our wallet, you know, and we're buying groceries. And, and I think one thing I'm trying to do with this book is encourage that conversation, but at the same time, encourage people to remember that cooking is something that we can enjoy and that that process is not meant to make us feel judgy or sad, you know, about what we're doing or feel bad about our decisions. So trying to find the balance between those two things is, I think, sort of the next step. You know, now that we're, we know all the things we shouldn't be eating. So let's incorporate it into how we eat in a way that we can just feel good about what we're doing. Mm-hmm. I noticed, um, so you have a bunch of recipes for kids' snacks and mm-hmm. things like that, and including goldfish, which I almost made this morning. Those are um, so good. Yeah. <laughs> Do you have a little fish cutter? I, I don't, but I'm totally <laughs> going to get one. Yeah. I was so excited about it. So um, I, I do want to talk about popovers because mm. I made your popovers uh-huh. and um, they're really, I've never made popovers. Before. I love that these are your first popovers. And they're cool. They have this sort of hollow middle yeah. to them. And, you know, I really have always wanted to make popovers because Dorothy Parker used to eat them at the Algonquin uh-huh. at the round table <laughs> and they got free I and they were that. free. Yeah. So that was why they would go there it was yeah. one of the things that they would get is the free popovers. And so I'm, I'm just delighted. And they're delicious. Yeah, I'm going to try yours too. Mm. They're beautiful. I know popovers are like one of my favorite things. And they're great for kids to make too Mm because they're so easy. And um, there's, you know, I, and I, like I say in the book, they're sort of the thing that saves everything because uh, they make it, they make normal dinners fancy. Like if you Mm -hmm. make a pot of soup or even you reheat some soup from the freezer, you can make popovers and it's like a celebration meal, which I love. Yeah, <laughs> right. I'm totally going to make them yeah. for like Thanksgiving and stuff. Yeah, yeah, they're great. And, I, and it's interesting because so I I just got my blender mm-hmm. and put my stuff in. And I'm always kind of not a baker. I'm not particularly a big baking mm-hmm. person. I'm not a sweet person. So I don't do like cakes and stuff like that. So whenever I see something, I have to bake it. I get really nervous. Yeah. So I get really intimidated by baking. Mm-hmm. And so I was really delighted that these came out. And it was a very easy recipe. And I had everything, which was good. They're really good. I love the. Did you do a little dill in there? I did. Dill I love and that. Mm. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, yeah. I think you know it's interesting how people. I was t- I was at an event last night, and someone we were talking about that difference between the bakers and the cooks, and sort of what is it about? Because I'm a baker who cooks. Mm. And then some people are cooks who bake. Yeah, I'm a cook. Yeah, I'm definitely a cook, and I'm a cook who really incredibly rarely bakes yeah and it's and and i i haven't gone the you know one step further to see like what does that tell us about ourselves i just can see very clearly that there are people divided in those two categories and Mm -hmm. you know for me throwing together dinner in a way that you know friends of mine who are cooks and especially professional chefs or you know friends who have been restaurant chefs who just they they cook so you know they clean up and they're quickly and they're they it's all efficient and 
perfect. And for me, I mean, I love to cook, but I, I'm a disaster. I mean, I just, there's a hurricane and like I use every dish and uh, luckily I have a husband who doesn't mind cleaning up after me because we clean together, which is oh, good. But that's, that's um, a key. Yeah. But yeah, so it's interesting because I love to bake. I would do it every day. Yeah. That's, yeah. I've, I, my biggest moment was when I made a cake out of one of the barefoot contestants. Yeah. Yeah. And it's funny because I have a cake recipe in my second book. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I can make a cake. You sure. Know, but, um, and, but there's a story in the second book about Mike wanted to make a cake. Okay. I think because the Cougars, which is his team, Washington State, they lost. And like, and he bakes. So Mike is the baker. Good. So Mike you, you have baker. it all covered. Yeah, yeah I got it covered. And he good. cleans also, which is awesome. So, <laughs> um, but uh, so he went out and we didn't. And he's like, we don't have any cake mix. And I'm like. I'm a chef. Like, why would I have cake? Like, I got all indignant. Like, why would I have cake mix? (laughs) So I'm like, what? I'm like, yeah. I'm like, well, we have all this stuff to make cake. And he goes, what? And I'm just like, just go Google it. You know, go look it up. So he did. And then he came out and he said, you won't even believe what's in cake. And I'm like, I have a culinary degree. I don't try me. I mean, you'd be surprised. But then he ended up making this cake. And he was like, God, there's only like five things in cake. It's so simple. I know. Yeah. And the nice thing about cake is that, um, especially if you're making like a simple layer cake or my favorite are sort of like, I call them everyday cakes, you know, like I have a pear gingerbread in the book, which is like that just comes together quickly. Or I have a rhubarb snacking cake. It's like, you can make it, it it's ready soon and you cut into it at four o'clock and it's really great. But those cakes are pretty forgiving that even if you're, you know, the worst thing that happens is if you're not a comfortable baker, you sort of overmix or this or that, and maybe it falls a little in the center. It's a little dry, but it's nothing that a little whipped cream or, you know, extra this or that won't fix. So I think it can be easy to get caught up in the fear of failure with baking because you put this, this, you know, investment of time and ingredients and good butter into something and you don't want it to be bad, but almost everything can be saved. You know, and it's and it's either really good or it's just good. And either one of those are pretty good. One of the things that I love, there's a great, great quote in here. Um, and it was about chicken. <laughs> I feel about perfect roast chicken as I do about God. Everyone has a different way of getting there. And I'm pretty sure that everyone is mostly right. So <laughs> tell me about that quote and why it's such a beautiful way to describe uh, my also I, I feel strongly about roast chicken it's, yeah it's something it's almost like a religion with me personally so yeah and do you have a do you have a perfect roast chicken recipe I mean, before I get into it I need to know who I'm talking to here yeah yeah, yeah. so I've done the really hot chicken uh-huh. and then you do it at 350 and I actually found out that they're all pretty, so fine. we've ended up in the same position so yes. mm-hmm. yeah I mean you know I think for me roast chicken was it was a big milestone in my cooking education because I'm, yeah, I didn't go to culinary school and I was raised with cooks. So my grandparents had a bed and breakfast and I was raised by a single mother. So I spent all my weekends with my grandparents. And so I cooked a lot with them. And then I cooked with my mother who had sort of a macrobiotic health food thing going on. You know, I, I became a mother pretty early. I was 23 when I got pregnant with my first child and I sort of ended up having these two kids then within a couple of years who were, you know, needed dinner. And my husband was raised on Taco Bell, so he also needed to start learning his way through the kitchen. But 
I was there more. So I started figuring it out and I felt like there's got to, you know, I was really, I grew up through all through college eating sort of like fried tofu, some steamed kale and, you know, like I had my meal and I was like, okay, it's time to step beyond this. And a friend of mine gave me Nigel Slater's Appetite. Do you know that book? Oh, and, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, um, and it was like such a gift because it's a big, beautiful book. And it, it was the first cookbook besides Moosewood that I had. Um, and he was so great and like irreverent, sort of like, eat what you want. And, you know, you don't need anything on the side. Eat all vegetables. Eat no vegetables. Like, th- And he had this roast chicken recipe, which had this gorgeous picture with all these herbs. And it was this messy pan with a half a lemon and like garlic and... And that was the first recipe I made from that book. And I felt like when I made roast chicken, I all of a sudden was a different kind of cook. And I think even then it struck me that, you know, you're sort of not someone who does something until you do it. And then you are someone who does something, which is kind of an amazing thing in the kitchen. Like, like you're someone who doesn't like to bake until you make that cake that you've realized, oh my gosh, I just made the best cake and I love the process. And then you sort of be, start becoming a baker. And so when I became someone who makes roast chicken, it, it shifted everything for me. And uh, I started making roast chicken once a week. And so, of course, I started looking at, you know, listening to all these different perfect roast chicken recipes. I went beyond Nigel and, you know, Lori Colwyn tells me to do it in a really low oven for like three hours, which is the opposite of Nigel Slater's really hot oven. And and every time for a while, you know, every time someone would say, this is the perfect roast chicken recipe, I'd be like, great, it's going to get even better. And every time I felt like I was sort of just walking into someone's experience in writing the recipe and sort of feel like, and I wasn't even writing recipes yet. I didn't have that consciousness uh, to the way that I was cooking, but I felt like I was getting, you know, I was getting Lori Colwyn's history and like what her, her, how her family made roast chicken. And I was, you know, I was hearing there's something about that recipe that becomes a window into how people cook. But the real end result of it is that every roast chicken was really good. So of course you can make a bad roast chicken, but it's not easy to do. And especially if there's a little butter in there and maybe a little lemon and garlic, low heat, high heat, as long as it's cooked enough, roast chicken is really great. So yeah, that's how, how that whole journey came about. But I love the idea of a recipe for roast chicken being a window to someone's soul, you know yeah. I mean? And, it, and it's true because yeah. I think it does say a lot about whoever that author is, if they're the people who want to like fancy it up oh, yeah. or they're like doing Moroccan rubs, right. up, you know, spice yeah. rub, like it, you know, it, or if it's just this really pure, basic kind of roast chicken. I know like, people really put them like as recipe writers, they really put themselves into those recipes and everyone has one, you yeah. know? And I, so I felt like my, this is my chance to put my recipe out for roast chicken, which of course is a reflection of all the ones that I've made. Yeah. I, I think, you know, for my, in my opportunity to put that recipe out there, I just had to I just had to say for myself that, you know, they're all right. Yeah. We and, can we can all get there. And where, where did you come to? What's your recipe? So my Talk recipe is a high heat. It's actually pretty similar to that original Nigel Slater. And uh, sometimes, you know, I've taken a few things from other people. Sometimes if I have the forethought, I'll salt a day in a head, as I learned from Judy Rogers. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's mostly just butter on the skin, a little lemon, salt. I don't do pepper right away because I find it burns on the skin. And 
you know, I just put it in the oven as is and I roast it till it's done. It usually takes about an hour, hour and 15 minutes and it's always perfect. And then I like to make a little sauce with, you know, with the drippings and I'll stir a little creme fraiche, maybe a little cream or broth into it. And then it's chicken juice essentially is what we call it at the table. Not a romantic name, but uh, yeah, it always wins. I mean, it's just little herbs if I have them, but yeah, I like the high heat method. Yeah. Mostly because of time. I can I have to say I kind of come down on that one too. I actually have a roast chicken recipe in my second book. Uh-huh. And I'm trying to remember it. And and I think that actually that book was all about trying to inspire people to cook and that things aren't very yeah. difficult and and I love a lot of examples of how you can vary a recipe. Mm-hmm. So I think I have like 10 different ways you can roast a chicken, oh, nice. like all the 10 yeah, different yeah. flavorings. Yeah. Because I, you know, mine is sort of similar. Uh-huh. It's kind of high heat. But I do olive oil and usually I do I do pepper. I've never really thought about yeah. it burning. But then I usually do some sort of kind of French. I guess it's sort of more French, even mm-hmm. though I use olive oil. But some garlic. I chop up garlic and then chop up herbs if I have fresh herbs yeah. like thyme or oregano or something. And I put it under the skin. Yeah, I like the under the skin. Yeah. And I'm all about under the skin. Yeah. That's, that's really... you know, Judy Rogers goes with you in that too because she salts under the skin. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes what I do also is I'll put preserved lemon rind under the skin. That's one of those moments when I often venture under there. Yeah. And the preserved lemon does kind of an amazing thing. That super salty funkiness, it, it, it gets very sweet and caramelized Mm. when you you roast it. Like when you have, so I'll do little wedges of the rind underneath and that's a nice one too. Oh, that's, that's pretty cool. I might have to try that. Preserved lemons are sort of my secret magic weapon in the kitchen. So I'm I use them whenever I can. Yeah. I find myself sometimes with just a lot of extra lemons. Yeah. Um, when I teach food writing, uh-huh. uh, one of my kind of classic uh, lessons is to teach people how to write with all five senses by mm. using a lemon because, you know, you have to describe what the lemon looks right. like and then, you know, what does it feel like? And you can't use the word lemon because uh-huh. lemon is a color, right? right, right lemon right. is a thing. Yeah. And it's, but I then I that. end up after classes a lot of times with like 20 lemons. Yeah, perfect. <laughs> like, what am I going to write? That's how I, I <laughs> and that's how I first. And it's funny you talk about when you do something, you become something. Mm-hmm. I had never canned anything, even though my mother yeah, yeah. was like this crazy nuts. Oh, like canner person. Yeah. Um, I never really canned anything. Or you did preservation. Or yeah. did preservation. Yeah. So I first, I taught myself to can by doing preserve lemons. Did you, do you can your lemons? I did. Yeah. I can. Oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah, totally. I did interesting. the whole, whole thing and, you know, did the bath and yeah, process yeah. them. And Cause you can also just leave them in the fridge for yeah. a year. I have done that. Yeah. I've also done that. Both ways. If you're giving them. away as gifts, I can see it. That'd be nice to can. That's yeah. what I did. Yeah. yeah. I them. And yeah. it was, Neat. I was kind of like, Oh my God, what if I kill people? Right. Like, what if I get this wrong? Yeah. But um, but they apparently have not killed anyone, so no. I'm pretty delighted about that. I mean, the nice thing about fermentation, um, I mean, so it's interesting when you combine canning and fermentation, you're sort of doing both things, you know, together, and they're actually totally counter processes. So, but when you're doing pure fermentation, like if you just do the lemons and then like um, fermentation has never killed anyone. Well, there you go. So. Not a single person. Wow. Yeah. It's so, actually one of the safest safe. food methods. Yeah.
You have some great ideas for how to use scraps in your kitchen. I'm flipping through your book. Listen, yeah. it's ambient sound. I'm yeah. flipping through the book. <laughs> so, um, but you have 10 scraps worth saving. So I love these because these are all things I do too. Mm. And I, it was the first time I've ever seen anybody articulate it pretty clear with the exception of the peach pit. Oh, uh, peach pit tea. Peach pit tea. So talk yeah. about that because I went, wow, that's awesome. Yeah. So... I have a friend whose mother is, she has one of these amazing gardens and she's sort of one of those, she's, you know, been taking care of her whole community forever and ever. And she's the one who taught me about peach pit tea. So when you're, especially if you're making peach jam or some sort of canning peaches in the summer and you end up with a whole bowl full of peach pits, uh, what you do is you actually boil the peach pit. So you want to get rid of all the, you know, the peach flesh and you can drink that too. It's delicious. So you boil the peach pits, you get this wonderful liquid, and then you dehydrate them in a low oven. And so you dry out the peach pits and then they they last. You can just keep them in a jar. It's good for, um, you know, sensitive tummies or, you know, when you start to get sick, it's peach pits are really wonderful for the system. That's what she taught me. But I also just love the way it tastes. And it's pretty you know, there's a little bit of tiny bit of um, arsenic in the center of a peach pit, like uh, mm. apple seeds or that kind of thing. So um, you you just want to boil them for a little bit of time. And it's and it's it been interesting, like when I've written about peach pit tea, people get really scared. Like, isn't there arsenic in the set? You know, I'm like, honey, the peach pit tea is not what's going to get you. I promise. Let's just <laughs> relax a little bit. You know, it's been an interesting because it's just not something that people are used to. But the result is this. A little bit peachy, but more almondy, wonderful drink. And it's what my kids ask for when they're not feeling well. They say, can you make me up some peach pit tea? And sometimes I'll add some, like a a slice of fresh ginger root, and I'll add a little a cinnamon stick and a little milk and then it actually makes like a chai and it's oh, really good so uh, nice. i love peach pits it's they're they're useful and they're also just really delicious ingredient to use in the kitchen they're great and they're you're not throwing them away yeah exactly yeah. the other things you have in here one parmesan rinds yeah aren't those just the best throw them i in cannot soup, believe right? people throw those away i yeah. know it's and so keep your parmesan rinds. yeah i put them in the freezer mm-hmm. which is a nice you know if you keep a little container in there it's then you can just pull one out throw it in soup and it's magic yay yeah <laughs> i know and it and it, t- it tastes like an italian grandmother made your soup oh, no matter no, what's in it right I know. I actually made a, a cabbage soup. Uh-huh. I just, because yeah. it was one of those things where I was like, oh my God, I keep looking. I bought this cabbage. Uh-huh. I've been looking at this cabbage for Time a month. Time to start making sauerkraut. That's, oh, that's another That might be your next so, one, yeah. yeah. So yeah. I, but I made this cabbage soup and Yum. it was kind of, you know, but I thought, oh, I just threw a Parmesan rind in. It just elevated the yeah. whole thing. It was those, delicious. They're amazing, Parmesan rinds, yeah. Yeah, and then carrot tops. Yeah. Yeah. So, so carrot top pesto is like my new favorite thing. I learned about that from Diane Morgan's book, nice. Roots. Yes, that's a beautiful book. It's a beautiful book, yeah. and I totally, now I'm all about carrot top pesto. Yeah. So, I like yeah. to mix it with arugula, too. Have you tried that? It's like um, I haven't. Because then you I get that like that. spicy nettiness, and then the, you know, that green, like carrot tops 
are so green tasting, you know, mm-hmm. like they're grassy. Um, you know, I love carrot tops. And especially when people are shopping at the farmer's market or, you know, in, in times when they're, they're often getting these beautiful bunches of carrot tops, you know, and it's like, why are you throwing that away? Like they're great. It's a great ingredient. Yeah. I also put them into green drinks. So we mm-hmm. do green like smoothies and yeah. stuff and they're great. I mean, I just throw the, just put the whole carrot in there yeah. top and all yeah and it adds like this you're right like you feel all yeah healthy. totally <laughs> <laughs> and then uh chicken beef and pork bones mm-hmm. so i don't usually make stock out of pork bones but do you do yeah that? you know um of course bacon will kill you though it's true we want to be careful and <laughs> never eat any more bacon so you bacon were, forever so you were telling us before we started uh-huh. taping about your whole bacon experience and you had to go on TV and make your yeah. pasta with your bacon and at the same, so talk about that because that was a great okay, story. and then we'll come back to our pork bones yes um yeah so uh so I've been on book tour and um I have been doing a lot of morning shows and and noon shows and I was I was in Vancouver and um I was so I did first the morning show and then the noon show and I am sitting in the green room waiting to do the morning show and I was actually making kanji on the morning show which is a nice like soothing, wonderful dish, no bacon in there. And I'm watching the news because, you know, you sit there and they have Mm -hmm. a TV running and there's the story, breaking, breaking, bacon, worse than cigarettes. And I knew that I was going to do the noon show in Vancouver on a different network and and that they had wanted me to make this dish from the book, this butternut squash pasta with sage and brown butter and bacon and, you know, and I I said to to the publicist who was with me, I said, you know, do you think maybe we should be making something else on the noon show? And she said... No, 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 they're not going to mention it. It's going to be fine. Like, it, it, no, it, there's so much other news. It's like, it's going to be fine. So I said, okay, okay. So we we go, uh, you know, to the noon show, and then I'm standing there at the counter. So the way it's set up, you know, you have this, this you know, you're watching the anchors behind the green screen, and then you're standing with your little kitchen setup that moves around. And I'm watching them report the story, and they're like, now live breaking, you know, bacon we have to all stop eating bacon and probably red meat and all processed meats and worse than cigarettes and I'm standing there with my bacon and they say and now our cooking segment and so there I was right (laughs) after I was like okay okay and you know it was just it was I mean it was good because it gave me you know some good things to make jokes about which is always good on live tv you know but uh yeah, no, I've been feeling a lot of the bacon questions. And it's funny, I'm people keep wanting to make this recipe on, on TV. So I'm, I think I'll have much more opportunity to talk about it. But, you know, every day there's a new food that's going to kill us. And don't we all know that we should just eat the things that are delicious in moderation and just keep eating them? Because, you know, unless they make you feel bad, I think, you know, none of us, most people are not eating a lot of bacon every day. So I say stick with the bacon. But of course, you could make that same dish with roasted pecans and it would be delicious. <laughs> As I said on TV. <laughs> As you said on TV. I know, yeah. I love that. I think Julia Child would have said, just don't eat so much bacon. Exactly. Right? She would just, you know, because her that was always her statement yeah. was, eat whatever you want to. And like butter's okay. Just don't eat a lot of it. And and isn't bacon, I mean, I love to use bacon as more of a flavoring, right? It's that salty, delicious, 
smokiness. I like that much more than if I go to breakfast and I eat like four slices of bacon. Like that never quite feels so good to me. So I almost can't make bacon because I can't stop. I'm like, yeah. I think I'm like an alcoholic with drinks <laughs> or something. Like, like I, if I, if I make like a pound of bacon, I'll eat yeah. the whole thing. So yeah, I, I just, I'll I just think, be like just a little piece here, a little piece yeah. there until the point where the, I look down and I'm like, oh my God, I need three oh, pieces bacon. of bacon for this recipe. And I don't have any left. <laughs> So I, yeah. Yeah. Um, So batch your pork bones. Oh yeah. So pork bones do make really nice stock. Um, I like to actually mix bones. And so I'll often save bones in the freezer. I just have a big container. I have a chest freezer, so I have space, which I know is quite a luxury. It's something that helps me out a lot, but, and I'll just throw bones in there and then I'll mix them. And I find that the mix of different bones, you know, that, that, that really helps the flavor of the stock. And the only thing I, I don't like using are lamb bones. For some reason, those just don't work well for stock. I think the resulting stock is too, it has too much of a lamb flavor. Yeah, yeah. Whereas otherwise, it's just more delicious, fatty mm-hmm. stockiness. So yeah, pork bones are great. Old bagels, pita, and tortillas. Yeah. So tell, tell us your tips for those. So all of those can be turned into delicious chips. And, you know, all it takes is just with bagels, um, you know, just a thin slicing. You just slice them thin and, you know, maybe brush them with a little olive oil. You can add some herbs. Um, same thing with pita, a little olive oil great with za'atar or something like that. And you just bake them in the oven. I mean, it's so quick. And don't we always have that stuff stale, you know, sitting around? Mm-hmm. And then for in my kitchen, you know, before I started doing this more, it's like they sit there and I'm like, I'm going to use them. I'm going to use them. I'm going to use them. And then they go moldy. And it's so sad. You throw away a whole stack of delicious tortillas or uh, so I try to, you know, I catch it right on the second day. And then we have snacks and Again, free food. Exactly. It's great. And it's quick. You know, it's not like you're paying for it with your time. It's really like often 10 minutes, maybe 15 minutes in the oven, and it takes no time to prepare them. So it's great. Yeah. And I've noticed from going into people's kitchens, because I have done that as part of the process of writing the second book, mm-hmm. and now I just can't stop myself. I always it's go so into people's fun, kitchens right? and like, look, it's like <laughs> yeah. looking at their bookshelves. Totally. It's so much more revealing. <laughs> I know. Um, but bread products are one of the things that people throw away a lot. Yeah. So it, that and the green stain in the bottom of the crisper that was lettuce. Oh, people, I know. Yeah. Isn't, and I am guilty of that as well. Um, but I think, you know, with lettuce, it's good to, I always say, invest a little bit of time right off the bat. You know, I wash my lettuce first, and I know this is a little bit controversial, but um, because some people say, no, don't wash it until it's time to eat it. But I wash it, I spin it, I put it in a container, you know, with a paper towel. And then it does two things. I think it keeps it fresh longer, but it also makes it ready to eat, which does, you know, if it's lunchtime and I have 10 minutes to eat Mm -hmm. and I already have washed lettuce, you know, that I washed myself a couple days ago in the fridge, and I already have a jar of salad dressing that I made, I'm so much more likely to make myself a salad instead of grab crackers, you know, and, and eat those quickly. So I feel like you just eat the lettuce more when you invest a little time ahead of, you know, ahead of time, you're like, oh, I washed this. I'll just, you know, oh good. We have lettuce all ready to go. So, um, it, it does that, you know, in two different ways, which is nice. I, I think that's a great tip. I think the other thing too, that, um, particularly for people who have kids and they work and mm-hmm. I think most people, when they say, I don't have time to cook, it's really more a perception that they don't have time to cook. Yeah. 
But I think there is a real kind of time poverty, if you want to call it that, in the afternoon, like right around dinner time if you have kids. Yeah. It's a hard time to make anything happen. Yeah. I know that I've told people in the past, well, when you bring your food home, like on the weekend, when you have more time, you know, chop up, you know, you can chop up stuff then and and you can even roast, you know, if, if you have a few hours on a Sunday and you go shopping and that's the time when, you know, whatever you're, you do some cleaning or you're, you know, hey, just hanging out at home, roast a few vegetables or, you know, do it make a pot of grain, you know, do a few things to invest in that week. And it's amazing how much of a difference that makes. Cause it's true, especially if you have two working parents and everyone gets home at five 30 or six even, and you've got to get dinner out, you know, it's no wonder that people find it hard. It's, it is really hard to get dinner out like, you know, in that moment. So it's true. Just a little bit of investment. It, it makes all the difference. Strawberry hulls is another one on your list. Oh, yeah. that. So my friend Janet taught me that one. And she's sort of, I, I preserve with her a lot. We do a lot of canning together. And she uh, has taught me a lot about fruit. And so when I made strawberry jam with her, she just takes off all the hulls and just throws them into a pitcher and then fills the pitcher with water. And what happens, it's sort of hard to even describe. It's It doesn't taste like strawberry water, although there's a slight fragrance in there, mm-hmm. you know, but what it does is it just tastes really, really good. There's some sort of enhanced, refreshing quality. Um, so I love it. We make strawberry water and we pack you know, whenever I'm doing a lot of strawberry preservation, we just pack pitchers and we have them in the fridge and it's almost like having just, it's just like having a fancy delicious drink in the fridge. It's great. I mean, even if you just have a little pint of strawberries, it'll, those little bit of holes will transform your water and make it really, it's sort of like putting cucumbers or an herb into your water, which is a nice trick too. It's just, I'm all about making those little everyday things fancy because I think it, it goes really far in terms of making a day feel better. Yeah, and I can I can see the strawberry water being like drinking summer. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, it's it's wonderful. And then uh, root vegetable greens as your next yeah. so item on your list. I work at the farmers market. Uh, I've been working at our local farmers market for almost ten years. That's really how I got my start in talking about recipes and how I realized that this is what I want to do. So. But, you know, talking about vegetables is really my first, this is, it's my first love. And uh, I sell for, for another farm that I have, you know, worked for, for all this time. And it is amazing to me how many people bring me, you know, a bunch of white spring turnips or beets or kohlrabi and they, and it has these gorgeous greens and they hand me the bunch and they say, can you take those greens off for me? Like people never want the greens. And every so often there's a smart, thrifty person behind them in line who says, I'll take those greens, you know. And I always say, like, you're getting two vegetables in one. And, you know, all of those greens are great. You know, beet greens are fantastic. And I like to cook, often cook things together. So the greens and the root often go really well together. But, you know, really all those greens, it's just like people buy Swiss chard and it's just this, it's very similar. I mean, everything has a different taste, but it, they're great greens. And if you come from the South, you're used to eating turnip greens, but yet I'm throwing away all, you know, composting all these turnip greens for people at the market. So, and even radish greens, uh, they can be a little hairy. So people are afraid of them, but if you fry them up in butter, as most things, they get all silky and wonderful. So yeah, root vegetable greens, fantastic. Really, it's hard to beat anything that's been cooked in butter. I'm all about it. But yeah. next week, they're going to say, 
don't eat butter. It's going to kill you. Uh, But we know what our answer will be to that. (laughs) So, um, and you also have leek tops and veggie and other veggie scraps. Yeah. You know, I throw all that stuff in the freezer too. And that's what I use for my stock. So those super top, you know, tough tops of leeks, those are great for stock. And I, and I also, I just actually heard from someone, I was talking about celery root, um, I think on my blog and, and somebody was like, oh, you know, I save all my celery root peelings for stock and those are amazing. And, you know, and, you know, all those peels have a lot of flavor in them. The only, you know, carrot peels are not as great for stock. They can get a little bit bitter, but everything else is really wonderful. And, you know, the, the tops of celery, of course, like anyone who has worked in a restaurant kitchen knows how great celery leaves are and people are often throwing those away and even stems of herbs, you know, like parsley stems are great. And so I just throw it all in a bag. And then when I have a day, I've got some bones, I've got some veggies, I can just put it all in a big pot, fill it with water and cook it. And then I've made stock out of things that I would have normally thrown away. And then I get all this stock and then I can freeze the stock. So it's sort of an amazing project that, that in a way comes from nothing, you know, it comes from all the things I've saved. And it's interesting too, because, you know, we were talking about being economical in the kitchen. If you buy chicken stock, for instance, it's like, you know, two bucks for like a quart, yeah, right? And or so, more, if, or more. Yeah, 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 totally. And so yeah, it's, if you think about making like 10 quarts of stock. Exactly. And especially if you, it. you know, if you have a, a freezer that has space, you can just fill up a bunch of containers and then you pull it out the day before. Or if you have a microwave, you can just, you know, defrost mm-hmm. it in the microwave and then you have stock and you made it and you didn't have to pay for it. And it's better. Like it just tastes better. And you also have control over the flavors that you like in there. Mm-hmm. So yeah, stock, it, it's a good one. It's a good one to make. I have another tip for you for the top of the leek. Yeah. To the hard green stuff. Uh-huh. Um, so we learned this at Le Cordon Bleu. So you take thyme, you know, like thyme stems uh-huh. and parsley and a bay leaf or whatever, and you tie it and you roll it up in the hard leek, you know, the green oh, part. Yeah, and that's and then you and you make the, a bouquet garni. You and know, you put stirring around it. I'm so glad that you that you say that because I've of course seen that and I'm always, and I've tried in my kitchen, like, how do you make that beautiful little bouquet garni? And, and I think I was always leaving out the leek. Yeah. It makes sense. So, and it, yeah. And you just yeah. wrap it up oh, and it holds yay. it all together. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. Yeah. <laughs> I bet you could make those ahead of time and freeze them and take one out. And I, you stock. could. And you know what? That would be a great It'd be a great project for a kid. Yeah, totally. They're like, Mom, I'm bored. And it's like, here, make some bouquet garnies. (laughs) Like like, in the time when the herbs are really growing and, you know, get a bunch of leeks and you can have a whole little container of them. Mm -hmm. And you can wrap them up like a little present. And they're beautiful. (laughs) And of course, your next one is bacon fat because you can't get away from (laughs) bacon killing you. Because of course we shouldn't be eating bacon, but we should be eating the fat. Yeah. No bacon fat. You know, when I roast my bacon in the oven, so that's usually how I like to do it. And so I end up with a nice, I do it in a, in a jelly roll pan. So I've got, I've got the rims and then I just pour, I strain it through a little strainer and I just pour it right into a jar and I keep that bacon fat. It's amazing for cooking. My grandmother always had a coffee can with bacon fat. Yeah. Always. I mean, and pancakes I, and bacon fat. 
right? Yeah. Shut and up. It's so good. It's or, so good. Or potatoes. Yeah. So, right. Yeah. And it's a, you know, I think varying up our fats is a really nice thing in the kitchen. It just changes flavors. And I like to use, you know, coconut oil for some things, bacon fat for others, neutral oil, olive oil. I just think fats are, are a really good thing to explore in the kitchen. And people often, especially with all the health concerns, people often like hear one thing is good and they really, they stick to it and then their food all tastes the same. Mm-hmm. That's a, that's a really interesting point. I think that it's true. Like for instance, I, I went to a friend's house and of course I'm always rummaging through right. people's <laughs> pictures. So I know she had all this coconut oil. Yeah. Like just, it's a big like, thing right now. Right. Yeah. And I have it, sure. you know, but I've got avocado oil yeah. and I use bacon fat and, you know, just different kinds Butters, of, you know, great. whatever. Yeah. yeah. And, um, and I kind of thought, wow, I remember that wasn't that long ago that coconut oil was really bad for you. <laughs> so <laughs> some point they're going to come out like in another, <laughs> the next scare. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. That's why I think it's nice to, you know, go in the direction of things that taste good to you and vary it up. Mm-hmm. You know, that's, I think is probably the most sane health advice, you know, eat different grains. Yeah, absolutely. you know, and of course, if things feel bad to you, avoid them. You know, if you can have, it's good to have that sort of awareness in your body. Like, oh yeah, you know, I eat too much bread, I don't feel well, or you know, too much sugar. But I think in the end, if we mix it up and go in the directions that our cravings are leading us, um, hopefully, if we can keep developing that intuition, we're we're going to be eating the right thing. I think that that's a great point. One of the things I loved about one of the messages that you have from the book and and it's something that I believe in and I try to really instill in cooks is this idea that, you know, do your best and let go. Yeah. And start where you are. Yeah. And be kind to yourself. Like I think that cooking um, and food has, it's very emotional for people. Absolutely. And I think for people who feel like, well, my food doesn't look like it does on top chef Mm -hmm. for instance, you know, talk about yeah. that because well, I, I, I really love that har- kind of harder. Ethos. Yeah, I mean, I think it's getting harder and harder these days with Instagram and Pinterest and and all the competitive cooking shows. When did co- cooking become something become a sport? And just Food Network and you know all these tools where people can learn really great things about food, but they have all these perfect images of of food. And the fact is, is that for home cooks, perfection is useless. I mean, it really is useless. There's no place for it. And we just need to, if, you know, if you if you make something that feeds you, your family, your friends, whoever you're eating, and it's sort of close to what you wanted to eat, then you're a success. And I just think, um, I just hear it over and over again, the fear that's keeping people from cooking. You know, and they're so afraid of messing up. And the fact is, is that you're going to mess up. You're going to burn things. And things are going to be oversalted or undersalted. And, you know, it's all going to happen. But there's cooking is it's a lifelong education. And you're not going to get there unless you just know it's going to go wrong. It's going to go wrong, but it's also going to go really right. And, you know, just just jump in, just do it. And I think start with the place that, you know, start with what you've learned and also start with what you want to be in the kitchen. It's so easy to look around and think, I want to be like that. I want to make this. I want to be making, able to make a wedding cake, you know, and that's great. But being really realistic about the thing that, you know, the dishes, the smells, the processes that bring you joy at the counter and starting there and just really like keep your eyes on your own paper, you know, just reach out to the books, to the 
teachers that you want to learn from, but just stay true to yourself. I think that's, that's, I've had to learn that myself. And I just think, go easy on yourself, relax. Well, I think that's a great sentiment. And I'm glad that we both shared that. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming to my kitchen. And, uh, and your Thank popover you. recipe was awesome. I'm going to share it with my listeners. Oh, wonderful. Well, thanks for sharing it with me today because it was really delicious. Thanks. Thank you. My guest today has been the lovely and charming Alana Chernilla. Her books include The Homemade Pantry, The Homemade Kitchen, and Cooking from the Ground Up, Recipes for Perfect Simple Vegetables. The title derived, of course, after her popular food site of the same name. You can learn more about Alana, check out her many wonderful and delicious recipes, and tons of really great cooking tips at cookingfromthegroundup.com. You can get the recipe for the dill popovers that I made today from her second book, along with links to books by some of the authors that we kind of toss their names in during the show, and you may not have been familiar with them. Well, you can learn more about them at hungryforwords.show. Today's show is produced by Abby Circatella. Music is by audionautics.com. We'd love to hear your feedback, so leave us a review on iTunes, or you can even send us an email at info at KathleenFlynn.com. That's it for our show. Eat well and be kind. I'm Kathleen Flynn.